All right, all right. Good morning, Hope family. We'll try that one more time. I know people are still making back their way back to their seats, still saying good morning. But good morning, Hope family. There it is. Hey, welcome to the seven Sundays of summer. Yeah, I, w- I was actually like just looking at you guys from over here, and I really love just the bright like colors that we bring to the room this morning. It was really, really fun. Uh, this is about as sunny as I get. <laughs> It's close. My dad was actually uh, famously refused to wear anything except for black, gray, or when he was feeling especially festive, navy blue. (laughs) So I'd say this is kind of an improvement, right? Well, anyways, my name is Brandon Hodge, and I'm one of the pastors here at Hope. I'm usually the guy up here with the guitar and singing and stuff, but today I actually get to help us continue in our sermon series called Luke, Jesus for Everyone. Basically, each week, we're preaching through the next story in the Gospel of Luke, and a gospel, simply put, is just a narrative about the life of Jesus. Because as Christians, right, as folks who seek to share deeply in the life and ministry of Jesus, we should probably know the one whom we seek to imitate, amen? Amen. So that's what we're doing. And today's passage is going to be uh, Luke 5, 17 through 26. If you have a Bible, you can start turning there now. But I'm calling today's message, The Faith of Self-Giving, Loving Friendship. And we'll see why in just a moment, but we're actually going to jump right into reading the passage together. It's going to be up on the screen so you can follow along. Luke 5, 17. One day while he was preaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem were sitting nearby. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Just then, some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a stretcher. They were trying to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down on a stretcher through the tiles into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. When he saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. Then the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, who is this speaking blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their questionings, he answered them, why do you raise questions in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you or to say, stand up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the one who was paralyzed, I say to you, stand up and take your stretcher And go to your home. Immediately he stood up before them, took what he had been laying on, and went to his home, glorifying God. Amazement seized all of them, and they glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen incredible things today. Now, this is true for me, and I think it's probably true for a lot of us, right? That one of the first things that we notice in this passage is like, Wait, 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 wait. What's the part about lowering a paralyzed guy through the roof in the middle of a room? And if you're my age or older, you probably can't read that story and not have this image in your head. (laughs) Right? And the real story is actually about that crazy. You see, in the region of Galilee, in Jesus' day, roofs were built by taking wooden beams, and then you'd cover them with tree branches and a thick layer of mud 
plaster. So when the story says they let him down on a stretcher through the tiles, Luke was leaving out like a few key details, right? Like how they would have had to dig through a thick layer of mud plaster. It sounds icky. And then they would have had to lower this guy, this, this you know, man who was laying down, so this hole that they had to dig would have to be large enough to accommodate a person laying on a stretcher and lower that grown human being laying down through the roof. I mean, as I read it, it sounds like the story could have just started off as like a dare that just kept escalating, right? But if I'm honest, I can't really blame them for that. So confession, I used to be a little bit mischievous when I was younger. Just, just a little bit. Anyone else, anyone else in here can relate to that? I see some hands. Okay, okay, good. Just a little mischievous. And it was usually not in ways that were like overly dangerous or too explicitly illegal. Just little things. <laughs> too explicitly illegal. Just little things like setting my friend's driveway on fire after pouring gasoline all over it. Or like in high school, I had this reputation, uh, because I told people regularly, that I would do literally anything for $5. In fact, I once rolled around in the snow, in my underwear, at the front entrance of a church, during the 2002 Winter Olympics in Park City, where about 50 people were staying at said church for $5. (laughs) Credit to my youth pastor, though. He was completely unfazed. (laughs) Shout out to all the youth pastors. I was just like low-key mischievous, right? Nothing to land me in jail or anything like that. And apparently when I began my 11-year career as a campus minister within InterVarsity, I hadn't quite gotten all of that out of my system yet. So I want to tell a story that's a bit unrelated to the rest of the sermon today, but our passage has to do with some fools who do crazy things on a roof. So this is my doing crazy things on a roof story. Here it is. In 2013, I was staff helping lead a group of college students for a cultural exchange in Xi'an, which is a mid-sized city in China. Now you should know that a mid-sized city in China is about the same as a very, very large city in the U.S., Right, Xi'an's population in 2013 was 8 million people. And in order to fit 8 million people in a population large but geographically small space, uh, Xi'an is actually only about 15 miles by 15 miles. Comparatively, Phoenix is 45 miles by 45 miles, right? In order to fit that many people in such a small space, you have to build up. So you can imagine, right, being in the midst of all these skyscrapers walking around, especially at nighttime, and just looking up. It's mesmerizing. So a few days into the trip, I realized that it is my goal and my ambition to stand at the very, very top of one of these skyscrapers at night. And because I was a good staff worker, and you never do ministry alone, I invited one of my students to come with me. (laughs) Right? So I invited Micah, and Micah, he was actually an older student, he was about my age, Um, but anyways, I invited Micah with me on my skyscraper adventure. And so that's what we did. We picked the largest building in the part of town that we were staying in, and one night, we, we just walked in. 
Now to us, it felt a little bit like a scene from Ocean's Eleven or a Bond movie or Mission Impossible or something. You know how they say that if you just act like you belong somewhere, no one will question you? Yeah, well, that's, uh, it turns out it works. <laughs> or at least if they do question you, it'll be in Chinese and I don't speak Chinese. So I'll just keep walking and hope that they don't do anything. That's basically how it went. So we just walk by security, hop into the elevator, we choose the top floor, and when the elevator stopped and the door opens, it was almost like the construction crew just like reached this floor and was like, nah, let's just stop here. It looked kind of, kind of like this. That's the kind of vibe it was, right? Kind of eerie. And there was just this single ladder that went up. And I could feel like a breeze coming. So it's like, oh, that is the top of the building. So we climbed the ladder. And just like that, we're standing at the very, very top of a 600-foot-tall building in the middle of China. We look down, the cars look like little Hot Wheels. We look around us, and we just see the glowing, burning city lights. It was unreal. It was actually one of the coolest experiences probably of my whole life, my little mischievous adventure in China with my friend Micah. Kind of dangerous, kind of dumb but totally awesome. So that's my roof story. I didn't dig a hole in a roof to bring my friend to Jesus, but the two stories do at least have trespassing in common. So that's something. Okay, back to the passage. So the man drops down, Jesus heals him, right? On the surface, this can feel like a standard Jesus healing story. But I think that there's actually so much going on as we dig through mud plaster, just a little bit deeper. So I like to say that one of the most important skills in scripture study is curiosity. In fact, at InterVarsity, the ministry that I used to work for, we say that curiosity is the absolute foundation of good scripture study. In fact, I challenge you, even in your own times of scripture study, to just start to ask questions of the text. It's helpful, one, because you won't fall asleep so much, and you'll probably learn a lot more, too. But one of the best kinds, and I think in this text in particular, I see a lot of why questions that are just begging to be asked. Some examples. Number one, why does Luke mention the Pharisees and teachers of the law coming from every village of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem? Why does Luke say that the power of the Lord is with him to heal? Wasn't the power of the Lord always with Jesus to heal? Why does Jesus forgive sins first and then heal? And then which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? I counted them, just how many words each is, right? Your sins are forgiven, stand up and walk. They're both four words. They both seem about the same amount of difficult to say to me. Now, something I love about scripture is that you could spend an entire sermon series exploring any one of these questions and its implications, but we only have time for one today. So let me tell you the question that kept nagging at me as I read the passage. Here's my question. Why does Jesus call the thing that he saw faith? Right, it's right there in verse 20, when he saw there faith. I mean, Jesus certainly saw something, but if I was Jesus, my first instinct would not be to look at that scene and label it as faith. 
So again, why does Jesus call the thing that he saw faith? Well, let's start right here. What did Jesus actually see? If Jesus kept a diary, this is how I picture it. (laughs) I imagine his journal entry from that day might have read something like this. Dear diary, I was teaching about the kingdom in a friend's house today and some very important but very stuffy and judgmental visitors were present. I was just getting to the good part when some dirt fell in my beard and made me sneeze. I looked up and more dirt fell in my eyes. To my great surprise, there were some men digging a hole through the roof so they could lower their paralyzed friend on a mat and be healed. What incredible faith! So I healed him. All in all, I'd say it was about an average day. (laughs) Good night. Right, like that's what Jesus saw. Can we agree on that? Jesus saw some people putting a hole in the building that he was teaching in and lowering a guy on a mat. So that's what Jesus saw. Why does it get the label faith when Luke writes about it? And notice, too, it's not his faith. He didn't necessarily see the faith of the man on the stretcher. It says he saw their faith, referring not just to the man, but to his friends. Jesus sees the actions of the men and labels it faith. Now, I feel with a very high degree of confidence that nobody else in that room labeled that event as faith, that Jesus was the only person who saw that and said, wow, what incredible faith. In fact, if you saw that event take place, right, how would you label the man's actions? Say it again. Perseverance, okay. Courage. Destructive. Destructive. (laughs) That was like my first thought. Disruptive. Yeah, like, come on, he's in the middle of teaching. And, yeah, he's getting crumbs everywhere. What else? Desperate, yeah. Which brings us back to my original question. There's a lot of ways to think about what he saw, right? But why does Jesus call the thing that he saw faith? Now, I think that the way that we answer this question oftentimes, and one possible reason to label it faith, is that because the friends somehow knew who Jesus was, right? That they knew that he was the Messiah and the Son of God, that they got that question right and they went to the right guy. In fact, I think that's often the interpretation that we walk away with from these kinds of interactions. Well, he just, they just knew somehow who Jesus was. But here's my big problem with that interpretation. Doug already mentioned it, actually. Nobody knew who Jesus was. Right? Even Jesus' disciples didn't know who Jesus was until after he was resurrected. I think we actually make this mistake all the time when we read the Gospels. Wow, like she had such great faith because she somehow miraculously knew and believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and the Son of God. It's possible. It just doesn't seem very likely to me. So here's what I actually do. I assume in stories like this that people knew only two things about who Jesus was. The first is that Jesus was a traveling teacher who preached about the already present kingdom of God with a greater than usual amount of authority. Right? We saw that in Luke 4.32. And the second is that Jesus was a faith healer. We saw that in Luke 4.39. 
So if the faith that Jesus saw didn't have to do with their knowing about who Jesus was, what was it? I'm just going to tell us. I believe that Jesus saw faith taking the form of self-giving, loving friendship. Again, faith taking the form of self-giving, loving friendship. Jesus saw what he puts beautifully in John 15, 13, right? No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. The pinnacle of friendship is perfect love. And because love is always self-giving, I'm going to simply say that faith is made most visible when it looks like the love between friends. But then that kind of raises its own questions, right? Like, what about the men's actions was an evidence of self-giving, loving friendship? And then how is self-giving, loving friendship connected to faith? Those feel like different things. There's uh, love and then there's faith, right? Well, let's explore those two things. The first question is, how are the men's actions an example of self-giving friendship? I think that that one's actually a little bit easier, but let me lay it out. The first way that their actions demonstrate love is the lengths that they go through to bring this guy to Jesus for healing. Right, like think about them carrying and or traveling with, because we don't know where they came from, with this grown man on a mat, possibly for a fairly long distance. And then there's the fact that once they get there, the door is blocked by this massive crowd. So I'm an introvert, and if I get to that scene and I see this massive crowd, that is where I turn around. <laughs> like, well, I guess we'll just see Jesus next time he's in town. Sorry. <laughs> if you're a parent in the room, you understand that instinct. But they don't, right? They push on and they proceed to lift the, again, grown man onto a roof so that they can dig a grown man-sized hole and then lower him back down through the roof in front of Jesus. Love breaks down barriers. Love sees obstacles, and instead of turning away, it presses onward. I mean, how many of us can imagine ourselves going through something like this for one of our friends? The second way that their actions exemplified self-giving love is that they go through all this for someone who likely can't even repay them. Right? In nearly all cultures, uh, handicapped folks are generally not the kind of people who have a lot of resources or are surrounded by the most friends, especially in Jesus' day. So their act was selfless. Right? They expected nothing in return but they broke down every barrier and jumped through every hoop so that they could bring their friend to Jesus and maybe, just maybe, receive healing. The third way, and I think we all understand this, is that love acts. I think that's actually what's meant by that popular phrase. You might have heard it recently, the phrase embodied. Do you guys hear embodied a lot these days? talking about embodied love and embodied this and embodied that. Well, when you hear the word embodied, I like to think of it like this. Just think about doing things with my body. Yeah? Embodied is like the opposite of only thinking the thoughts in my head. It's when the thoughts in our heads turn into action. Like, it's totally fine to have generally positive feelings toward our friends, our spouse, or even God. But love can't 
transform. It can't heal. It can't be made manifest until it is embodied in tangible action. And these men act in a powerful and selfless way to bring their friend to Jesus. Love seeks the very best for an other, even and especially when there's great personal cost involved and great obstacles to overcome. And if that's the case, I think it's pretty easy to say that these friends acted out of self-giving and loving friendship, right? Okay, but then the second question, how is self-giving, loving friendship connected to faith? I thought faith is all about, like, believing the right things. Here's what I'll say to that. Intellectual uh, belief in an idea or concept about God or Jesus, it can certainly be a kind of faith. But the biblical idea of faith is often more a matter of trust or even trustworthiness. Faith in the biblical sense has more to do with the thing being trusted in than in my ability to trust in it. And therefore, Jesus' concept of faith is realized when people act in a way that demonstrates their trust in God's trustworthiness. When you act in a way that demonstrates trust in God's trustworthiness. This might be where I lost some of you, but I promise you that this idea is actually really easy. We all understand this. Have you guys ever done or are familiar with the trust fall exercise? Anyone? Okay, we kind of know what that is, right? So there's one person who stands behind, and there's one person who stands in front. The person who stands in front, uh, it's, it's a trust fall. You trust that the person behind you is going to catch you, and so what do you do? You just fall backwards, right? Here's how it relates. You can only trust when you feel confident in the trustworthiness of the person whose job it is to catch you, right? You don't do the trust fall exercise <laughs> with the mean kid in, in, in your class. You don't do it with the crazy uncle. You do it with someone that you trust. If you can't trust in the trustworthiness of that person, you're not going to fall backwards. How does this translate to God? We can most fully trust God when our concept of him is as a God of mercy, compassion, and most of all, love. If our idea of God is one who is selfish, retributive, distant, or exacting, that God might deserve our fear, but that God will never earn our trust. Which idea of God do you think these friends put their hope and trust in? Right, which vision of God would inspire them to break down all these barriers to bring their friend to Jesus? And so Jesus saw faith when people dared to believe against all contrary evidence, sometimes even contrary to the prevailing teachers of the time, that God desires mercy, not sacrifice, that God is more concerned with justice than ritual, that God is the God who knows us deeply and rather than turning away from us, turns toward us. Even and especially in moments of deep pain and brokenness. 
Jesus sees faith when people act in such a way that they either choose to trust that this just might be true about God. Uh, And we saw this just a few weeks ago with the leper. If you guys remember that healing story, right? He approached Jesus in spite of his feelings of unworthiness. He thought, maybe God is compassionate and loving and merciful enough to heal even me. But Jesus also sees faith, and I think he gets even more excited by this, when people embody God's spirit of mercy, compassion, and love. In other words, Jesus sees faith when he sees people giving mercy to the undeserving, showing compassion to the outcast, and loving the unloved. And that's exactly what he sees in the friends. Jesus saw the friends break through every barrier and ignore every obstacle so that their friend could again, maybe, just maybe, receive the healing touch of God through this traveling healer teacher. And they got extra lucky because guess what? This particular healing teacher happened to be the very God that they sought compassion from. He saw self-giving, loving friendship in action And he called it faith. Now, Paul actually gives words to this phenomenon as well. In Galatians 5, 6, he simply calls it faith expressing itself through love. Now, I think that the reason that I was drawn to this question in particular, right, with all of its implications around friendship and love, is because if I'm honest with myself, Like, if there was a report card on life, I don't think that I would get a very high grade currently in the friendships category. Like, the question that haunts me from this passage is, if I found myself on that mat, would I have a group of friends willing to bust open some roofs when Jesus comes to town? Or would I be willing to go through all of that, to go that out of my way, to help my friend in need. People of hope, do we have friendships with depth and love that would make this kind of miracle possible? If I'm honest with myself, I don't know that I know the answer to that question for me. The good news and the bad news is that according to social scientists and the medical community, I'm not alone there. It's not not really good news. (laughs) On May 2nd, 2023, NPR published a story called America Has a Loneliness Epidemic. And yes, this was just published like one month ago. Here are six steps to address it. A few notable quotes from the article. Number one, there is an epidemic of loneliness in the United States and lacking connection can increase the risk for premature death to levels comparable to smoking 15 cigarettes per day. Next, the physical consequences of poor connection can be devastating, including a 29% increased risk of heart disease, a 32% increased risk of stroke, and a 50% increased risk of developing dementia in older adults. Here's the one that really got me. This is from the U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy. And you can feel lonely even if you have a lot of people around you because loneliness is about the quality of your connections, which is also to say that it's not about the quantity, right? 
The article goes on to discuss the impacts of social media as it pertains to loneliness. It states that the increase in social media interactions has led to a decrease in perhaps not the quantity of our relationships, but certainly in the quality. In other words, we have more relationships than ever, and we're lonelier than ever. We have a loneliness epidemic. And I think some, if not many, if not most of us in this room, have felt the symptoms. I know I have. When I think about the implications of our current loneliness epidemic, there's a kind of irony, right, that the man in Luke was able to be healed of his paralysis in part to having such intimate friendships. And 2,000 years later, people are literally dying from a lack of friendship. In short, there's a long, large distance between where we find ourselves today and the extraordinary example of those friends in Luke 5. And in light of that reality, it can be really easy to slide toward hopelessness, right? But I want to encourage us and say that there is hope, and I find three places for hope. The first place that I find hope is in the history of our faith, of Christianity itself, which provides rich examples of close and intimate friendships. Today we're going to look at the friendship of St. Basil and St. Gregory in the 4th century. Look at these guys. <laughs> They're like the Tom Brady or the LeBron James of Christian friendship. They're the goats. So Basil of Caesarea and Gregory of Nazianzen, it's a hard word to say, began their friendship while away at school. But later, they would become two fathers of the Christian faith. In fact, they helped to define and give language to the concept of the Trinity, right? Or the God who is one and yet exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So yeah, they're a big deal. Listen to this excerpt from a letter written by Gregory about his friendship with his friend Basil. I was not alone at that time in my regard for my friend, the great Basil. I knew his irreproachable conduct and the maturity and wisdom of his conversation. And in this way, we began to feel affection for each other. We became everything to each other. We shared the same lodging, the same table, the same desires, the same goal. Our love for each other grew daily warmer and deeper. He goes on, we seem to be two bodies with a single spirit. In our case, each of us was in the other and with the other. Whew. I mean, that is like the definition of a bromance, right? <laughs> like, you know by reading that, that Gregory would tear down a house for his buddy Basil if it was required of him. So I share this to say that this kind of friendship between friends is very Christian. It doesn't have to be weird, right? I know that for like the very first time I read this, I, I probably raised my eyebrows a little bit. Lord, forgive me. But this kind of intimacy, not between lovers, but between friends, is natural and perhaps even necessary. The second place I find hope is I see hope in that Scripture is full of wisdom in regards to the value of friendship. In fact, speaking of wisdom... King Solomon writes throughout the book of Proverbs on the topic of friendship. Here's just a few of the Proverbs, Proverbs that have to do with friendship. Proverbs 17, 17. 
A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. 27.9, perfume and incense bring joy to the heart, and the pleasantness of a friend springs from their heartfelt advice. 12.26, the righteous choose their friends carefully. 18.24, one who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Scripture would seem to affirm that friendship of depth and intimacy absolutely is necessary. And finally, I have hope because I've seen glimpses of this kind of miraculous friendship even in my own life. So, do you guys remember my story about me and Micah on top of the skyscraper? Okay. Uh, And I said that that story was basically unrelated to the rest of the sermon. I lied. It's not. But actually, it was as I was writing the sermon and reflecting on that story more and more that I remembered what happened after our adventure in Xi'an. So after we spent the summer together going on rooftop adventures, sharing meals together, and traveling the city, Micah and I became roommates that next fall. And around that same time, I began to develop uh, feelings for an acquaintance of mine named Rahel. Spoiler alert, Rahel is my wife now. But I had all this anxiety about asking Rahel out. Now, like I said earlier, I am an introvert, but I was never shy around women. In fact, that was part of the problem. (laughs) I had dated quite a bit in high school and college. I'd had my heart broken, I'd broken some hearts, and overall, I think I just made some really poor choices when it came to romance. Rahel, on the other hand, in my eyes, was a saint. I didn't feel like I deserved her. I didn't want to mess up again, and especially not with Rahel. Well, Micah knew that I liked Rahel, and he would constantly ask me about it, usually in very relatable 20-something-year-old guy speak, right? Dude, stop being lame. When are you going to ask her out? (laughs) But I just couldn't bring myself to do it. Now, I had shared some of my past with Micah so he could see why I felt the way that I felt. But, and this is important, he still believed in me. And finally, one day, he took matters into his own hands. This is a true story, by the way. I was just getting home from work with college students, so it's probably 7, 8, 9 p.m., who knows. Uh, And I'm hungry. And as I'm approaching the door, I can smell pizza. So the closer I get, the more excited I am to get home and eat, right? But as soon as I open the door, Micah is just standing there. Before I could say anything, he goes, Hey man, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go into your room, and you can't leave until you call Rahel and ask her out. Once you do, you can have some pizza. (laughs) I mean, go Micah, right? (laughs) So I did. I went in my room, I called her, and I asked her out. And now we're married. (laughs) So the call went well. In my moment of self-doubt and fear, my friend Micah carried me. He carried me by believing in me when I didn't believe in myself. He demonstrated the self-giving love of God when he received my story of pain and brokenness without judgment 
and invited me into a more true and beautiful story. Now, he wouldn't have put it that way, right? 20-something-year-old guys, if I asked him today, he'd probably say something like, I don't know, I just helped you stop being lame. (laughs) But I kind of like that version better anyways, because we don't have to write letters to each other like St. Gregory in order to love each other the way that God loves us. Right? Our love can and should take on the particulars of our personalities. And looking back, I sometimes even wonder if Rahel and I would have even gotten married if it weren't for my inviting Micah to stand on top of a skyscraper in China. That can feel like dramatic or far-fetched, but I, I invested in Micah. Right? Not as a project, not as a student, but as a friend. And when I needed it most, he carried me and his faith led directly to my healing and my flourishing. Do you see it? Friends, God designed us for deep, meaningful relationships of trust, mutuality, and dependence. That's why in Genesis 2.18, God said it is not good that man should be alone. A primary way that we reflect the image of God is in our capacity for relationships. I mean, think of the Trinity itself, right? God is not simply an I, God is a we. That is to say that God is not God outside of relationship. The essence of God is relationship, and as image bearers of our creator, relationship is written into our DNA, But that's also why we can't fully experience flourishing without relationship. Our epidemic of loneliness is not God's punishment for getting a bad grade in the friendships category, right? It's the natural consequence of living lives that are less than our created potential. And so with all that in mind, I want to suggest four ways that we can apply our text today. The first one is aimed directly at the loneliness epidemic, or other words, how we can escape the relational hole that our culture has placed us in. And then the other three are steps that we can take to live out of faith through self-giving, loving friendships. So my first suggestion, it's actually super practical. It's that we take breaks from social media and other passive forms of entertainment. Someone clapped. (laughs) I will be the first one to admit, I need this. There we go. (laughs) Like, not only does decreasing our screen time free us up for for time that we could be spending in relationships, uh, and by the way, new research says that the average person, that's average, uh, so I think all of us in this room fit somewhere in here, spends four and a half hours per day on digital entertainment. Right? Not only does it free up that time, but it also, um, decreasing screen time, improves every other aspect of our cognitive function, even, and especially in this case, empathy. Right? And relationship is impossible without empathy. Okay, that's the first suggestion. Screen time, less of it. Second suggestion is to do it together. 
One of the things that I love about my skyscraper story, and again, as an introvert, this was a little bit out of character for me, is that I could have easily done that whole thing by myself, right? But I didn't, and I got a wife out of it. <laughs> Not really, but you get the idea. Like, there's so much that we do in our lives that with a little bit of, you know, pre-planning, a little bit of coordination, we could do with others. And I think this is what's often meant by that very churchy phrase, doing life together, yeah? There really is no way to shortcut into self-giving, loving friendships. They take time. And choosing to do more things with other people is one way that we can invest in loving our friends. So call up a friend after church today and invite them to climb a skyscraper with you. Take breaks from social, do it together, and my third suggestion is that we receive each other's stories. Remember how I mentioned in my story about Micah, or remember how I mentioned this, that Micah received my story? Micah received my story of relational brokenness, and in doing so, our relationship was able to grow deeper. In fact, had I not shared all this with Micah about my feelings for Rahel and my insecurities, he wouldn't have locked me in my room, and who knows where I'd be today. That's to say that how we spend our time with others matters. Watching the game together or the latest episode of The Bachelor, that's all great, right? There's nothing wrong with that. But if that's all that we do, we might be missing out on something better. When we give and receive stories, we invite others to know and participate more deeply in our lives. We open up spaces to minister to one another through prayer, through acts of kindness, or even just the ministry of presence. And this doesn't have to be like overly weird or flowery or anything, right? When someone asks, hey, how are you doing? Just be real. You know, I'm feeling anxious about work right now. Actually, my relationship with my wife has been pretty rocky lately. Man, I just got test results back from the doctor and I'm feeling pretty freaked out. Going there can be very risky and very vulnerable, but it's essential for love to find a space to become embodied. And finally, if you find yourself struggling with friendships, maybe you just have barriers here and can't seem to make progress. Or maybe you've experienced hurt in a past friendship that like in a move to self-protect, right, leaves you saying, no, 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 never again. Or maybe you just feel paralyzed. Like if people knew the real me, if they really knew who I was, they would reject me. Whatever the reason, if you find yourself in a space like that this morning, I invite you to seek help. I'm going to offer two ways that we can seek help. The first one is that while we do offer prayer every single week at Hope, and I highly encourage us to seek prayer regularly, we're going to offer prayer a little bit differently this morning. So after Doug dismisses us, if you feel like something that I just said is resonating... Like, if you want to experience freedom in pursuing these kinds of friendships, but for whatever reason you find yourself stuck, would you just remain in your seat after Doug dismisses us? And one of our prayer team members will come and pray with you. I promise you, they won't try to fix you. They won't offer advice. If you don't follow Jesus yet, they won't try to convert you. What they will do is they will carry you to the Father's loving presence and facilitate an encounter between you and Christ.
So again, after Doug dismisses us, just remain seated if you want to receive prayer and allow your Hope family to minister to you this morning. And then the other way that we can seek help, Doug says this all the time as well, uh, is through therapy. Right? Therapists are professionals who have the emotional capacity to hold even our deepest areas of pain and brokenness and give us the gift of unconditional positive regard, as my wife calls it. Therapy is one of the many avenues that God uses for our healing. The reality is that sometimes our problems are just more than we can handle alone. And again, that's normal. We're not meant to do it alone. And therapy can be one of the tools in our healing journey. Uh, Worship team, would you come up? I'll end with this. Relationships are not built overnight. So while I do offer these applications, and I think that they're good, it's not about getting stressed out. It's not about beating yourself up or trying to muster up the energy to do all of these things this week, right? Rather, I think it's about forming habits. What is one small step that we can take in the right direction this week? Next week. The week after that. When I think of the paralyzed man, I can't help but think that he had spent years developing the relationships with those men who, in his moment of need, carried him to Jesus, leading to his healing, his forgiveness, and his deeper flourishing. Let me pray for us. Creator God, thank you that you've created us to need relationship. God, when I think of the Genesis story and the humans that were walking in total freedom in the garden, the thing that was present there was relationship without barrier. And that is also the thing, God, that we find ourselves so lacking today. I will be the first to admit it, Jesus. Jesus, would you help us to believe the truer and better concepts of who you are, that you are a God of mercy, compassion, and love, so that that would inspire us faithfully to give ourselves in self-giving, loving friendships. I pray for everyone in this room. Would you bless us to say yes in the ways that you're inviting us to? And Holy Spirit, would you empower us to follow through and to make those changes a reality? We pray these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.